like a Pavlovian dog situation. If y'all hear the bell, y'all just get up and go see how you can take care of somebody. Um, so we'll see. That will be a good uh, social and science experiment uh, this morning. Hey, this morning, as we um, sang these songs, uh, that song that says, Open the eyes of my heart, Lord, I want to see you. Now let's think about that for a minute. Let's think about whenever Isaiah saw the vision of the Lord. Y'all know there in Isaiah 6? In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah has this vision of seeing the Lord, and, and, and he, he's, it's just this expansive vision. Here's how he describes it. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above stood seraphims. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he did fly. And they cried unto another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. All earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. And the house was filled with smoke. Now, if you don't have a, a concept of the temple, I mean, it was a pretty, uh, pretty amazing structure. Uh, one of the wonders of the world. You got to think about this temple, the beams that he's talking about are like cedars from Lebanon. And so whenever he says that the post shook, he's not talking about like a, a little hollow core door over here. He's talking about a beam. I mean, you could think about these beams are probably thicker, a little bit more rough cut even. What's his response? To sing the Lord. Woe is me. For I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I want to see you. The question is, are we really ready for that? Moses says to God, I, I want to see you. Give me this grace, this gift. God says, you can't look on me because if you looked at me, you, you couldn't. Your, your physical body couldn't take it. Nobody can look on me and live. He says, what I'll do is I'll pass by and you'll get to see what comes after. Powerful moment there. Here's what I want us to think about this morning. When we see God, when our eyes are open to him, that's, 
begs the question, are we ready if we really think about it? We can't take that flippantly. But then also, when we see God, and to see God, of course, it's not just talking about seeing Him with your eyes, but it's, it's also this idea of knowing Him, understanding Him. And you could even say this, when you know Him, then you can see things as He sees them. And I wonder if we're ready for that. If we can really see ourselves, this world, from God's perspective. The prophet Micah we've read this morning already the prophet Micah got to see things from God's perspective that's part of what being a prophet's all about um, I would say um, you, you've, you've probably seen prophetic figures in your lifetime uh, I believe a lot of artists have that prophet vision like true art true art that can see something for what it really is, whether truly beautiful or truly ugly. And different mediums of art do this, right? I've talked to you all about whenever I saw um, uh, Picasso's Guernica and, uh, and, and actually got to go see a whole exhibit dedicated to Guernica and it was, and it was, this, it was this amazing picture depicting this horrible event and as I was walking through and, and reading and studying the art, the piece of art um, and all the images that, that uh, Picasso had put in there I was moved and I thought this is a prophetic work of art it's trying to say hey this is not just the history of happened but this is what it really looks like. Prophets get to see that. They get to see not only what God really looks like in these images and symbols, right? I see, I see the Lord and He's sitting on His throne and He takes up the whole temple, Isaiah says. But they get to see things from God's perspective. I'm going to read... Uh, out of the NLT this morning, I just, sometimes, especially when reading prophetic works, it's good to see this, but the question is, are we ready to see things from God's perspective? Here's how Micah responds to seeing things from God's perspective. How miserable I am. This is Micah chapter number 7, beginning of verse number 1. I feel like the fruit picker after the harvest who can find nothing to eat. Not a cluster of grapes or a single early fig can be found to satisfy my hunger. Now just so you all know, he's using an image here. He's saying, I'm looking for some good fruit. And... And it's like the harvest has already come 
and the, 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 the healthy trees that, that have this promise of vegetation, I run to them and I look at them and there's nothing on their branches. Why? What's he trying to symbolize here? What, what's he talking about whenever he talks about the fruit? Verse number two. The godly people have all disappeared. Not one honest person is left on the earth. Now that's an extreme statement, right? Uh, I think we should address this. Sometimes the Bible uses hyperbole. Y'all know what hyperbole is? It's extreme exaggeration. And you'll see it all throughout the Bible. Sometimes you'll, you'll find, it will say, they killed every last one of their family members. Not one of them survived. And you're like, wow, they obliterated a whole family line. And then like two chapters later, they'll be like, hey, somebody who was left over from this family line that got obliterated two chapters ago, they're right back there. So, so sometimes they, they use these extreme statements. There's not one person left on this earth who follows God. Well, what's interesting about that is earlier Micah actually makes a claim to the false prophets. He says, you're false prophets, you're taking bribes, and you're only saying what pleases people, but not me. I don't do that. So Micah might not have been talking about himself whenever he says there's not one one person on this earth. But it feels that way to him. And sometimes our feelings are a little exaggerated, aren't they? And so he expresses it. He says, I'm looking for good fruit. And I can't find a single solitary grape. There's not one honest person left on the earth. They're all murderers, setting traps even for their own brothers. Their hands are equally skilled at doing evil. Officials and judges alike demand bribes. The people of, with influence get what they want, and together they scheme to twist justice. Even the best of them is like a briar. This is creative right here. Even the best of them is like a briar. The most honest is as dangerous as a hedge of thorns. The best of them are prickly. Tenuous at best. He says, don't worry, your judgment is coming swiftly. Your time of punishment is here, a time of confusion. And then he tells the people, do not trust anyone. Not your best friend or even your wife. Insert joke here, right? I'm just so glad that this is not put on a t-shirt, right? It says in the Bible not to trust your wife, so I don't. 
Don't trust anyone. Nobody's reliable to trust, to depend on. Not your best friend, not even your wife. The son despises his father. The daughter defies her mother. The daughter-in-law defies her mother-in-law. Your enemies are right in your own household. I imagine when we see the Lord for who He is and we get eyes to see as the Lord sees, we can understand the statement about Jesus that says He was a man of sorrow acquainted with grief. He couldn't sit easily down at the party and enjoy the banter and the festive meal. Because all these guys sitting around the table were ignoring the slave girl and scoffing at her for breaking her alabaster box and washing Jesus' feet with her tears. Because they're proud and they're presumptuous. And maybe, maybe she's the prostitute that she is because they've twisted justice. And Jesus knows it. But they, they get to say, I've never prostituted myself. Yeah, you're right, you didn't. But you have corrupted justice enough so that you could create a system in which this woman had, humanly speaking, had no options. And now you walk around with your heads held high, looking down your long noses at her like you're something better. Could you imagine Jesus sitting there? And, and, and sometimes, if you read that passage, that story, Jesus lays into them for a little bit. It's not one of those soft moments of Jesus. It's a very, you could imagine, teeth-gritted moments of Jesus. You do this kind of stuff all the time, guys. You set up these parties and the only people that you invite are the people that you can benefit from. And you act all high and mighty and pious. See, Jesus saw things differently. Saw things as God sees them and tries to give us eyes to see things as God sees them. And when you do that, I think the simple statement of Micah, how miserable am I? Because I can't ignore it now. I can't unsee these things. I cannot lie, excuse, defend Vindicate these things. 
So we see this kind of stuff happening in our own day. People are pointing out injustices, wrongs, uh, corruptions of power. And some of us want to sit there and excuse, defend, vindicate it, or even just keep our eyes closed and our ears plugged. I don't want to see that. But they're here. Whenever I read this, he, 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 Micah earlier, he talks to the judges and he says uh, to the judges, listen, you leaders of Israel, you are supposed to know right from wrong, but you are the very ones who hate good and love evil. You skin my people alive and tear the flesh from their bones. Yes, you eat my people's flesh. You strip off their skin. This is chapter 3. And break their bones. You chop them up like meat for the cooking pot. Then you beg the Lord for help in times of trouble. Do you really expect him to answer? After all the evil you have done, he won't look at you. And of course, he's talking about this because they take bribes. They're not honest. Whenever I read about things like that, I think, man, we have a whole system of government that is being influenced by lobbyists. And we all know what's going on. And we know who has the whole, whoever has the most money and has the most influence, it doesn't matter what we, the people of the United States, say. It's hard to see those things sometimes. Harder still not to excuse those things. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. If our eyes are open, to him. Not only do we see that we fall short, we will see in greater and graver detail how so much of this world is bent and crooked and out of joint. And then you and I have to live in this world in some sort of way that doesn't excuse, defend, justify, vindicate the evil, and also, which which tries to put a kibosh to it, in some sort of way in which we do not propagate the same sort of evil. But you know that we're going to fall short of that. And if you see God for who he truly is, you don't measure up. You're overwhelmed by him. And you see this world as it truly is. And this world doesn't measure up. You might begin asking the question, what do we do?
What do we do now? How can we get things right? How can we reorder things in such a way? They asked this question in Micah. Sorry, sometimes my phone does not want to move whenever I'm trying to move it. I'm embarrassed now, y'all. I'm sitting there. You know whenever you're trying to look for something and you're like, okay, go, okay here, 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 I'm going to find it. I'm going to find it. And then all the words on the page are just one big word, right? <laughs> or just like, like you're, you can't identify any of them. But you're like, okay, here we go. I found it. After the Lord pronounces some judgment, I brought you out of, uh, he says, what have I done to you? What have I done to make you tired of me? I brought you out of Egypt. I redeemed you from slavery. I sent Moses and Aaron and Miriam to help you. Don't you remember my people? Don't you remember how King Balak of Moab, this is chapter 6, by the way, tried to have you cursed and how Balaam, son of Beor, blessed you instead? Do you remember your journey from the Acacia Grove to Gilgal when I, the Lord, did everything I could to teach you about my faithfulness? Parents have often had this conversation with their kids. Why don't you trust me? Is nothing I've done good enough for you? I mean, y'all probably have. Our kids are perfect. So we've never had this, this kind of conversation. Only every day. You know, my kids. We, 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 went, we went to the, uh, the beach last week and uh, spent the day at a park doing all these lovely things. And then we went uh, to get a meal and we said, oh, y'all are going to have to have water. And you would have thought that we said, you, you don't get to eat. You got to watch us eat. They're like, but we want Dr. Pepper. I mean, and then it was like, you know, just meltdown central. Because my grateful little sweethearts that they are. Oh, thank you, Father, for all the effort and energy you put into it. This is God understands this. And that's sometimes the only thing that I can take solace in is that God's going, hey, I'm the perfect parent. And y'all blow it. So, so I like. So sometimes I'm just like, it's not my fault. It's their fault. You know? <laughs> uh, I, I'm not a perfect parent. But if God is the perfect parent and we blow it, then at some some at some point the parents aren't to blame, right? Um, I'm gonna say that whenever I stand before Him one day, I'm gonna be like, you know, at some point I'm not to blame here. No. Uh, anyways, I'm so silly. Uh, but we've all had this 
conversation or you've had it with a spouse. Whenever you feel like, haven't I done enough for you not to, for you to trust me, for you to think the best of me in these situations? He says this, and there's a response by the people. What can we do? How can we fix this? And that was the question that we asked a few minutes ago. Should we bring him burnt offerings? Should we bow before God most high with offerings of our yearly calves? Should we offer him thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Should we sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sins? Something that's interesting here is the people who take bribes to bring justice think, what could we do? I'll tell you what, we could bribe them. Oh, no, they just wanted to worship him and bring him thousands of rams. No, they thought he could be manipulated. We'll bring you the choicest, the choicest rams. Here's my child, my firstborn child. Isn't it like us to think that God could be paid off? Despite the fact that all throughout Scripture and expressly in Jesus Christ, God says, I don't operate the same way you do. I cannot be impacted and affected by bribes. I do not need to be conjoled to do good. Despite that, there's this persistent thought. We'll do the right thing. The better thing will we'll bring the right stuff, the better stuff. That should sort it all out. Micah goes, you fools. You are making this way more difficult than it has to be. Verse 8. No, 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 no. No! Why? Why do we have to keep doing this? But here we are again. No, O people, the Lord has already told you what is good. And this is what he requires of you. Do what is right. Love mercy. And walk humbly with your God. That can't be right. That can't be enough. I mean, because if you really see me as God sees me, then you know I don't measure up. And if you see this world as God sees this world, then you know it doesn't measure up. So we really need to do something to to make payment for the way things are. And God says, no, you just need to start doing 
things like I do things. You don't need to do right because somebody did right by you. You just need to do right, period. In fact, you don't get a pass for doing wrong because somebody did wrong by you. You just do right, period. And Jesus tells us this. And we still go, I don't know if that's enough. Micah knows it's enough because God's revealed it. But Micah also knows it's enough because he's seen God and he sees things the way that God sees them. And even though it's a miserable situation, because Micah knows God, he knows he doesn't get affected by bribes. He doesn't need to be conjoled. He doesn't need your firstborn's blood. No. Back to Micah chapter number seven. Micah says, I can't find good fruit. There's nobody to trust, and I'm encouraging you, don't trust anyone. Go in grace. <laughs> right? You know, no. Verse 7 says, As for me, I look to the Lord for help. I wait confidently for God to save me. And my God will certainly hear me. So don't gloat over me, my enemies. For though I fall, I will rise again. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. I will be patient as the Lord punishes me. For I have sinned against him. But after that, he will take up my case. And he will give me justice. For all I have suffered from my enemies. The Lord will bring me into the light and I will see his righteousness. Why? Why would the Lord come to his aid, to his rescue? Why does he have this, this persistent, steadfast, unwavering assurance? Hope, trust that the Lord will do this. Verse 18 of chapter 7. Because there's no other God like you. I know this because I know who you are. Because I've seen you. And I see things as they are, as you see them. And what I know about you is this. You delight in mercy. You delight in mercy. You delight in mercy.
Is that what our world supposes of God? That he delights in mercy? No. Think about it. I asked the questions earlier. Are you ready? Are you ready to stand and to see God for who he is? And find out that you don't measure up? And when I said that, fear gripped your heart. Oh no, I don't measure up before God. That fear, natural response, but that fear should be removed by now. Because you should know, when I stand before Him, And I see things as he sees them. Even though I don't measure up. And even though this world is crooked and bent. And he can't sit still and just let it happen. And and without being affected. When I know at the end of the day. Is he delights in mercy. So, our systems of injustice, they roll on. Not because God doesn't care, but because God is very patient and tries so hard to move people away from this bogus world's way of doing justice. Moreover, God has not sat still. He sent some people into this world. uh, Empowered, filled with his spirit. And he told those people, you go do it differently. And when you and I, who are those people, or among those people, we're not the only ones. You and I who are among those people, when we do it differently the world gets to see glimpse images of God and His way in this world. And at the end of the day, His mercy is still rolling on. The reason why we have a hope for a new day. A new day when Jesus Christ returns. The reason why we can set our, our, our eyes on some joy that is coming. Is because our Lord delights in mercy. That's it. He delights in mercy. You need to remember, we need to remember that our God delights in mercy this week. But let that motivate us to be people of mercy ourselves. Not just the recipients 
of mercy. But the givers of mercy, well, what does that look like? Well, for one, I would say it looks like stop pointing the fingers at everybody else and go, we're all in this together. Y'all know what I mean, right? I mean, in our, in our nation in particular, there's two sides pointing at each other. I really feel like it's, have y'all seen that Spider-Man meme where it's two Spider-Man, they're both dressed the same and they're looking at each other and they're pointing at each other like, you, 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 like they're, like they're if you haven't seen it, then this is a terrible illustration. But if you have seen it, then you get it. But that's all that's happening in our world. Both sides crying foul at the other for doing the old foul things the other does and acting like, acting like it's okay for us to do it because we do it the right way or for the right reasons. It's not okay for you to do it. Bologna or baloney, however you want to say it. But we should be the people who are standing there saying, hey, we're all, we're all, we're all messed up. And instead of pointing at the other side, let's point at the actual wrongs that are going on. The inequalities and the injustices. And why don't we make our fight unified against those things? But even, let's not even talk about it on those big scales. We always like the big scale. We all like the dare to be great moment. But you don't live in dare to be great moments. You live in the mundanity of life. I know social media and driving around town in my car make me think that I'm the center of the universe. But I'm not. And what I mean by driving around town, don't you feel like everybody's watching you? Whenever you're driving your car, like everybody, everybody can see and, 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 and everybody's paying attention. And if you don't, maybe that's just my narcissism speaking. But I always feel like, oh, man, everybody's going to see everything that I'm doing in my car. So, um, you know, you kind of play it cool. Like I want to sing and I want to get a little lively. But I'm like, well, that would be embarrassing because everybody's going to see me. But alas, I'm not the center of the universe. So. What I have to do is be merciful each and every day in my home. I have to learn how to lead my children to look like Jesus, to follow him, to seek and to search out God each and every day, to, be, uh, to let the spirit win the battle over the flesh each and every day. And they get to see me do that with my wife. And so if I'm impatient with her, guess what? If I'm not kind, if I'm unruly and unmerciful towards her, well, that matters. No, ma no matter how many messages I preach, that matters.
no matter how many prayers I say with people on the phone or by their bedsides. It matters. My brothers and sisters, there's a two-edged sword when we see God. It is, and we see things the way that God sees them. None of it measures up to who he is, to his character, to his design, to his desires. And that's frightening. But we also get to see that he delights in mercy. And that's where our hope lies. And that's why we should be agents of mercy each and every day. Simply doing what is right. When it is convenient to do so, and there's times whenever it's very convenient. It's very convenient for me to be cool, level-headed, and calm whenever my kids are being sweet. And they listen the first time. It's real easy to lose my mind, become uncontrolled in my spirit. Whenever I've said to do something five times and they've yet to do it. And here's the deal. That doesn't mean I just let them get away with it either, right? Mercy doesn't mean that. But it also means that I don't look like Macaulay doing it. And Macaulay, when he loses his temper, is a bully and a sarcastic jerk. And he can, he can, he can poke And be rude. And so whenever I do get to the sixth time, I need to know I can't lose my temper and look like Macaulay. Because I want to see the Lord not only by my eyes, but I want the Lord to be seen in me by their eyes. So my brothers and my sisters, May we have eyes to see. May the Lord open up our eyes. And as he does so, we will find out that we are pretty in a pretty miserable situation. And that would be pretty terrible were it not that he delights in mercy. And because he delights in mercy, you and I, you and I not only have someone to trust in, But we have good, good reason, good basis, good foundation for that trust. So may we go. May we go not only looking to the Lord, but looking like our Lord. And with that I say, amen. 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 Will you bow your heads, close your eyes, spend a moment thinking.
Maybe you want a vision of the Lord right now. Maybe you have a vision. Maybe, maybe yours is like John's on the Isle of Pat- 